The sun is setting on another day in Santiago. It's time to kick back with a mote con huesillo and an empanada de pino. I'm Sarah Rovang. And I'm John Golden. And you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. John. Before we get started here, can you explain to our listeners what a mote con huesillo is? Yeah, it's this traditional Chilean summertime drink that's made by taking dried peaches and cooking them in a combination of water and lots of sugar and cinnamon. And then when you kind of cool that that sort of nectar, uh, they add in freshly husked wheat. And the whole thing, you get the whole, like the peaches, the reconstituted peaches, and this very sweet nectar and wheat in a cup. Um, it's it's kind of odd. Yeah, it's it's sort of a snack unto itself, what with all of the solid food that's floating in there. Yeah. We uh, actually tried them last week when we were up on the top of Cerro San Cristobal, which is the highest natural point in Santiago. Yeah, the, the mote was, was definitely very sweet, um, and it maybe is kind of an acquired taste. I have no idea where this particular dish came from, no. but... I mean, you know, it it was enjoyable. So how about empanadas de pino? Yeah, so those are the uh, kind of standard Chilean empanadas um, filled with uh, seasoned beef, onions, raisins, and always a a single olive. So they're kind of, yeah, the Chilean national empanada. Yeah, and we haven't tried them yet, but we hope to soon. They're sold pretty much on every street corner here, so they're not hard to find. No. Uh, Also worth mentioning, though, that empanadas here are baked and not fried. Yeah, so as you can probably tell, we've managed to pick up some information about sort of Chilean foodways since we arrived in Santiago last week. And shortly after we recorded our last podcast, we packed up and hopped on a bus from Valparaiso back to Santiago. And we're spending about a week in this great Airbnb in in downtown Santiago. It's a sort of one-bedroom apartment at the top of a brand-new apartment complex. Yeah, and it's really central to everything. We're in the barrio of Santiago Centro, which is the heart of downtown. And it's definitely not the hippest neighborhood. You know, it's not where you would go to eat somewhere special or hip, but it's really proven to be quite convenient. Yeah, and we have this amazing view of the city as well. I mean, it's not hard to believe, looking out over all of the urban sprawl, that about a third of Chileans live in the Santiago metropolitan area. Yeah, it's definitely a bustling global metropolis, but to be fair, it's not even remotely on the same scale as Tokyo. No, but I mean, you know, just looking at the numbers, Chile has almost exactly twice the area of Japan, but only about 15% of its population. There's 126 million people in Japan versus like a little over 17 million in Chile. I guess one of the things that has surprised me so far is how actually strong the sense of national identity is in Chile, despite how long the country is and how relatively dispersed the population. But the idea of being Chilean seems quite powerful. Yeah, and that was definitely something that both of us picked up on during our first full day here. And we did a, a private walking tour in Santiago with a guide we found through Airbnb experiences. Which we've had very good experiences from the... No cons- pun intended. Uh, right. <laughs> At least from the consumer side of things that we've heard from various experienced operators that we've talked to that Airbnb is still kind of working out the kinks of this relatively new feature. But yeah, we'd recommend it. Definitely. I think it's just new in Chile, too. I think it's elsewhere in the world as well. 
But yeah, we also used Airbnb experiences to find this great historic walking tour. We also did in Valparaiso. Um, so anyway, our guide Francisco met us in the historic Plaza de la Moneda, which is sort of the in front of the Chilean House of the President um, in downtown Santiago. And he, Francisco was really instantly likable, charismatic guy who he's actually worked in tourism and has a degree in tourism. Um, and he's now using these Airbnb experiences as a way to be his own boss for a while. Yeah, so we wandered through a bunch of historic areas in the central city and then over to Barrio Bella Vista, which is kind of this bohemian nightlife area. And then we made the short but rather sweaty climb up to the top of San Cristobal. So I'm curious, John, if there was anything that surprised you that day or particularly caught your interest as we were walking around Santiago. Well, it was actually just amazing how many other people were out walking. I mean, it just seemed like downtown Santiago had had a lot of pedestrian traffic. In fact, there are these pedestrian-only streets right in the center of the town that, um, that really seem to be getting a lot of use. And in particular, there are just an astounding number of, of street vendors. I mean, yeah. I know that this is common in many countries but for some reason it feels like Santiago is the place I've been where there are just the most people out selling anything you could want just sort of on every little street corner um, and I'm kind of always wondering about how the economics of that works right, and right. kind of yeah hope that people can make at least some kind of living doing that because they are just everywhere um, and yeah, I mean, walking around Santiago is also, it's, it has a very odd topography. It's yeah. like this totally flat city. I mean, everything, everywhere you're walking, you're never walking on a hill until you get to this very concentrated hill, San Cristobal, and then all of a sudden you're like going up a pretty steep grade. Right. But as long as you're not hiking directly up this hill, it's totally flat. Um, and there are plenty of, of situations where you can be sort of looking away from the mountains and it just feels like you're in the middle of Texas or something. Right, you know, it's right. It's just, just completely flat, um, which has this really sort of odd odd feeling. It's also punctuated by these incredibly tall um, apartment buildings yes. that, you know, it's like very flat, single story, everything single story, and then this 30-story apartment right. building in the middle of, of the city. Um, so, yeah, it's a it's a definitely a different place from any anywhere I've been before. Well, how about you? What do you? What do you think of Santiago from sort of an urbanist's perspective? Right. Yeah. Well, I had heard previous to coming here that Santiago has a lot of old world charm. And I would say that so far it has lived up to that reputation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think just in general, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later when we sort of talk about politics and race here, there's still a lot of cachet connected here to being European, quote unquote. Right. Um, and you see that a lot in the architecture. A lot of the sort of grandest architecture is very Spanish Baroque mm -hmm. um, and feels very European. And, you know, to be frank, I, I've quite enjoyed that. There are these sort of grand plazas uh, that really have a sense of scale and magnitude. And I didn't really realize that I missed that style of Beaux-Arts planning until <laughs> we were in Japan, where that really isn't so much of a thing. Yeah. There was this one park, Ueno Park, close to where we were staying in Tokyo that was sort of the first Beaux-Arts style park in Tokyo. And we just kind of kept gravitating back toward it because I think it was the sort of public space that we're used to from a Western perspective. Yeah, the sort of normal ratio of walkways and trees and fountains and big museums and... Exactly. Yeah, that was all felt very comfortable. Yeah, so... 
so far I've really enjoyed that aspect of Santiago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it was, it was great to just be in Santiago walking around. You know, our four-hour walking tour turned into six and a half hours because we, we were all just having such a good time and we were in no particular rush. And it was also just great just having the two of us and Francisco, and he seemed more than happy to just have two people on the tour and was giving us his, his full attention. And it was just, at the end of it, just like hanging out with a, with a friend in the city. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was only one sort of slightly scarier off-putting moment where we wandered into a cloud of pepper spray <laughs> yeah. that had wafted from a riot that was happening down the street. Yeah, I, I think we can count ourselves lucky to have never experienced pepper spray before. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the whole day, really now, sort of looking back on it, felt like we were unpacking Chile's past in order to sort of interface with the present-day reality of this country. And we really got a very visceral taste of the conflicts that are still present when we saw that riot going on downtown. Yeah, and we were lucky, too, that Francisco grew up in Pinochet, Chile, and was very familiar with riots and pepper spray, and he knew exactly what was going on and exactly where to go to get out of the the fallout from the pepper yeah. spray. So glad that we did not encounter that on our own yeah, without exactly. a native uh, Chilena. Um, and yeah, I mean, there, there are so many ways in which historical conflicts are still being worked out in contemporary Chilean society. Yeah, I mean, these riots were actually ignited by the killing of an indigenous man from a cultural group called the Mapuche, who live in the south of Chile and also in parts of Argentina. Um, Starting with the arrival of the Spanish, the Mapuche were one of the few indigenous groups who really actively resisted colonization and fought back when the Spanish basically tried to kick them off their lands. It was only after the advent of modern Chile, following the country's war of independence from the 18-teens to the 1820s, that the Mapuche were finally sort of subdued. But they've still remained a really vocal force of opposition since many of the government's attempts to, say, build hydroelectric dams, for instance, have really greatly affected the Mapuche people in their lands. Yeah, and, and so the government has painted the activists as you know, eco-terrorists, and the current president has even created an elite police force nicknamed the Jungle Commandos. Um, and last week, one of these so-called commandos had an encounter with a Mapuche man and ended up shooting and killing him. And it's all kind of under sort of rather suspicious circumstances. So the unrest following that death spread to Santiago, where we glimpsed just a bit of the protest that was happening. Yeah, and, and so there are certainly aspects of Chile that actually resonate with us as New Mexicans. You know, this is also a place where some people are, are really trying to come to grips with the legacy of the Spanish and other European colonization. And there seems to be kind of a slowly shifting consciousness that the conquistadors weren't the brave heroes that they were portrayed as for so long. So if that distant colonial history is still very present, even more recent and much more palpable is the fallout of General Pinochet's dictatorship. Right, yeah. So it's, it's been so interesting to see how Chile is still processing and reacting to that 17-year period, which you know, only ended in 1990. And, and I think both of us have been surprised by how uh, apparently nuanced attitudes still are towards the dictatorship. Yeah, I honestly wasn't expecting to hear that there are people here who still look back nostalgically on Pinochet's tenure as dictator. Yeah, fortunately, the Museo de la Memoria y los Derechos Humanos, that's the Museum of Memory and Human Rights, takes a pretty hard line on the dictatorship. As one would hope from a museum about human rights. 
Yeah, but just from a visitor experience perspective, I think we both had a more positive reaction to this museum than we did to the Apartheid Museum in South Africa. Yeah, and, and just in general, it's been really interesting. I think we both, in talking to native Chilenas, we've been trying to sort of tease out and gauge the similarities and differences between Chile and South Africa. Um, and, you know, there's just a lot of interesting things that we've picked up on. One that I saw kind of in the museum yesterday is, is really how the 80s were this period of, of incredible riots and protests in both Chile and South Africa. And in many respects, how that seems to be kind of a consequence of the Cold War mm-hmm. and how all of the sort of international attention was really focused on the Cold War. And that almost kind of gave the space for a lot of these um, local uprisings to really push forward and to really push these countries to brinks of collapse almost. Um, And then once the Cold War ended, an international focus was able to shift back onto these conflicts and sort of exert that international pressure um, on both Chile and and South Africa um, and and, and provoke change. I do think that that international relationship is something that I'm more interested in. And certainly the Museo de la Memoria did a much better job than the Apartheid Museum in talking about international pressures and kind of what was at play that Obviously because of, like, U.S. influence and and British influence in in getting Pinochet into power. Um, But, you know, in South Africa, the international, um, or in the Apartheid Museum, the international presence really was, like, the size of our Airbnb kitchen. You know, in in the museum, there was just this little corner. Yeah. um, And I really wanted to know a lot more about that. So it was great to to learn about it. So how about you, Sarah? What did you think of the museum? Um, Well, from an architectural perspective, I think that it just gave a lot more, we were sort of saying, like, both physical and mental space to process what you were saying. Yeah, it was just so much more open. Yeah. That was one of our big critiques of of the Apartheid Museum was it was really claustrophobic. Yeah, you felt really closed in. You were sort of being propelled along the single line and there wasn't really a natural space until right near the end to like step aside and take a little break if you needed to because it's kind of hard to like process all (laughs) of that at once yeah um and one of the things that i really liked about the um human rights museum in santiago is that there's this sort of protruding glass box memorial that comes out sort of into the heart of the museum it's sort of cantilevered um above the main floor of the museum and that is kind of like the both figurative and physical heart of the, mm-hmm, the museum. Mm-hmm. And there are also like really nice sight lines that you can pick up running across the museum. So you don't ever feel like you're just trapped on a corridor, like looking at horrible things. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I came away from that museum feeling a little bit less just sort of overwhelmed and exhausted. And yeah. I think a lot of that had to do with the way that the space was being used. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, continuing these comparisons with, with South Africa more generally, not just the museums, you know, in South Africa, though, there was this sort of clear consensus just in the museum and, and then broadly in the country that apartheid was this huge mistake and, and sort of a grave violation of basic human rights. Right, right. And when we encountered that one Airbnb host who looked back fondly on the days of apartheid, it, it felt really anomalous. Not to mention, yikes. <laughs> yeah. And here it seems like 
there was this significant part of the population, you know, the wealthy and the industrial tycoons who actively benefited from Pinochet's rule. And unfortunately, those folks still have a lot of power today. Yeah, and, you know, as opposed to South Africa, where, again, the white population is only 9%. Right. You know, so when you're looking at people who really benefited from apartheid, you know, there just aren't that many of them right. physically in the country. Um, but here, you know, it seems like as long as you were sort of upper middle class, you know, you did very well under Pinochet. And so, right. you know, the the final votes to end the dictatorship, you know, was still... 56% voting to end it and you know 44% were pretty happy right. with with how things are going yeah. so um, yeah and and you know more generally this is something we also we heard from our guide Francisco that you know corporations and corporate interests still really run run this country yeah but kind of interestingly at the same time the government since Pinochet has apparently become quite centrist. You know, we've heard from several people that right and left don't really mean that much anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess after Salvador Allende's Marxist government, which was overthrown by Pinochet's fascist one, people were really ready for something closer to the middle here. Yeah, although, I mean, I do get the sense that, that actually there is a critical dividing line between right and left when it actually comes specifically to Pinochet's legacy. I mean, the, the Museo de Memoria was initiated by the leftist president, Michel Bachelet, while, you know, another one of our walking tour guides mentioned that the current president, who's on the right, uh, Sebastian Pineda, does more to, I guess, shall we say, not upset those who are supportive of Pinochet. So I think there is still this real kind of thorn in the countryside of, of how do we deal with this, and the left and the right end up on different sides of that. Right, but still at the end of the day, a lot of the power really rests in the hands of these big mining Yeah, I guess, yeah, Francisco was made point that, you know, it, on the top of the ladder is corporations and also the church to some degree, and then below that is the politicians. Right. So maybe... The, th the fact that left and right don't really matter that much, it's because politicians don't matter as much as exactly. they do in other countries. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and so we got a taste of um, the influence of corporations when we went uh, to tour a copper mining landscape south of Santiago earlier this week. Um, and I think this definitely counts as our recurring segment, I did it for the architectural history. Yeah, no joke. Yeah, this is definitely a non-trivial excursion to see the historic mining town of Sewell. So this was one of my Brooks sites where I looked on the map and thought, oh, it's pretty close to Santiago. You know, not realizing that the elevation difference was about 5,000 feet or the fact that you have to go on a private guided tour to access the site since it's owned by the national mining company, Codelco. Chile has been a mining country for long enough now that some of its former mining locations are now actually being named as national monuments or even as UNESCO World Heritage Sites. Yeah, and so that was the case with the site we went to visit on Saturday, the now uninhabited town of Sewell. And so Sewell was founded in 1906 by Braden Copper Company, uh, which is from the United States, but had been granted mining rights by the Chilean government. And the Norte Americano founders brought with them very certain ideas about how a company town should be run. So the town, which is built into this crazily steep mountainside, really architecturally reflects Braden Company's beliefs about work, leisure, and religion. Yeah, for instance, the Braden Company wanted this to be a dry town, so there are no bars, no brothels, but there was a bowling alley, which was really, I guess, the center of the town's activity, yeah. and also a movie theater. Uh, and even though Chile is a majority Catholic country, 
Sewell features a non-denominational church where everyone could worship regardless of their faith. And despite being super remote and up in the mountains, many aspects were actually quite cutting edge. The hospital, for example, used up-to-date medical advances from North America that weren't yet in common use in the rest of Chile. And the movie theater even got new releases before they came to Santiago. That said, life was still pretty hard for miners and yeah. their families living in Sewell. Um, so there was actually a kind of a tiered system in place that separated all the inhabitants into A, B, and C roles. So the North Americans were all A role and lived in single-family housing and had their own school and recreational facilities. Meanwhile, the B and C roles, uh, which were the majority of Chilean miners, lived in cramped tenements where there was only a single bathroom per floor. And the climate and topography are quite unrelenting in Sewell as well. The town is about 7,000 feet above sea level, and even though it was in the mid-80s in Santiago that day, up in Sewell, temperatures plummeted to around 50 as this big cloud moved over directly onto the mountain. And it must have not have been easy relying on stairs to get around the mining site in the town. Sewell is actually named the City of Staircases because there is hardly a piece of flat land anywhere. Yeah, and the historical aspect definitely was, was interesting, but it was also just interesting to see more of the landscape outside of urban Santiago and to experience this kind of professional touring company. Mm-hmm. So we started the day by just picking up the tour bus um, outside of a Starbucks in downtown Santiago, And for some reason, we weren't on their list of participants, even though we had tickets and we showed them that. So they let us on, and it didn't seem like too big a deal, but then there wasn't an English guide on the (laughs) tour, which there definitely should have been. But anyway, we we got on the bus, and it actually took like over three hours to drive up to Sewell. Um, And actually, the bus was basically full. It was lots of middle-aged, maybe retired folks. And one interesting thing was sort of along the way, we had a little pit stop at kind of an outdoor shopping mall that really would not have been out of place in, you know, Albuquerque or Virginia or something like that. It was just, you know, Starbucks and a Foot Locker and a Dunkin' Donuts. And, you know, it was all very much uh, familiar to us. Um, But anyway, eventually we got up to the town um, after driving through a rather large block of land that's that's for the mining company. And we were really driving on mining company grounds for like over an hour to get up to Seawell. Uh, up in the mountains. And then once we were there, it was really a very highly scripted and guided walking tour um, for for a few hours, um, which I'll let uh, Sarah talk about in a second. Um, but yeah, after that, we drove back down to this nearest uh, major town, which is a little over an hour and a half away. And we had some lunch, but by that point, it was 4.30, so we were quite <laughs> hungry. Yeah. Um, and then we drove back to Santiago, getting back actually like after 8 p.m. So it was it's kind of a 12-hour day. It was a it was a big excursion. It certainly was, yeah. And I think, you know, there was a point at which I was feeling sort of frustrated and let down that there wasn't any English on this tour. Yeah. Um, and John really had to sort of remind me that, you know, it's okay to be in meta mode, to sort of step back and say, you know, what are other people getting out of this tour? How are other people engaging with industrial heritage around us, even if we can't understand everything the guide is saying? So that was a helpful way to kind of reframe what could have been a really frustrating experience. Yeah, and truthfully, from context, we could pretty much figure out what was happening, although, you know, you do miss a lot of, like, I'm sure that was a very funny anecdote she told us about the bowling alley, but I didn't understand anything. But still, it's crazy. There's a bowling alley. We're in it. Okay, I get the point. 
Yeah, no, it was it was just also really interesting to see how popular this place was as a tourist attraction. Absolutely. I was kind of expecting that this would be a really sort of niche thing where maybe, you know, five people on the bus, <laughs> you know, who actually wants to spend 12 hours going to this deserted mining town? And yeah. it turns out that a lot of people do. Um, there was even a... Uh, sort of youth dance performance of traditional Chilean dance happening out on one of the plazas while we were up there. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there's some extent to which interest in Sewell really taps into this idea of Chilean national identity. Mm-hmm. Um, which we've seen in Japan as well. Oh, definitely. Sure. Yeah. 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 And South Africa. Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. Um, and it also, similar to other experiences we've had in Japan and South Africa, especially at sites that are still managed by a private corporation that's in business, there was definitely a lot of sugarcoating when mm-hmm. it came to, you know, how the miners were treated. Um, you know, they certainly did address some of the issues, the crowded living conditions, some of the major mine disasters that happened. But that seemed somewhat subsidiary to just talking about the bowling alley, which yeah. everyone really seemed to like and kind of glom on to. Though if I had to rank the three countries, I would say that at least Sewell had the most upfront discussion about particularly the mining accidents right. over Japan and South Africa. I think they were there was a nice there were plenty of like big murals and a lot yeah. of discussion about saying this was awful, not kind of the Japanese this created better conditions in the future. Right. You know, it was very upfront about Yeah, the we, we spent about 20 minutes in front of this giant mural, which is clearly someone's dissertation waiting to happen, <laughs> that was kind of in this Italian futurist meets Diego Rivera meets Guernica sort yeah. of mode. Mm-hmm. And it sort of told the story of the day in chronological order and... At, just the fact that they're willing to share that mural, I think, says a lot about, you know, confronting the past and actually dealing with the tragedy. Yeah, and th- this is specifically about an accident that happened in the 40s, mm-hmm. I think, when um, carbon monoxide got into the yeah. mine and over 350 people were were killed. So, yeah, it was absolutely a tragedy. And, but they, they did talk about it yeah. in addition to probably spending 20 minutes in the bowling alley as well. Right. So, yeah, you know. So despite the long day and not being able to understand very well what our guide was saying, it was still really rewarding and informative. Yeah, so that uh, actually brings us to our regular concluding section, overrated and underrated. So, Sarah, what has been overrated for you recently? Well, I would say tours that include lunch. Oh, yeah. Somewhat overrated. (laughs) It seems like a great selling point, but then by the time 4.30 rolled around and we were ravenous and then eating somewhat marginal prefix food yeah and an overly sweet pisco sour yeah, yeah. Eh, i would have just preferred to have gone home at that point yeah just give me a ham sandwich and a brown paper bag at some point and that's <laughs> right <know>. yeah <laughs> okay john what about you what's overrated this week uh well this is it's kind of a mouthful and one that takes a lot of unpacking but i would say that um overrated is the cultural pressure to shop at and enjoy large local markets so <laughs> by, by this, I mean, this is sort of a standard, like Anthony Bourdain piece of advice is that you always go to the local market whenever you're in a new place. And that's like the beating heart of the city. And that's just where you'll learn the most and just have this really rich, full experience. Um, and, you know, I see, I see where people are coming from, but 
you know, we went to La Vega, which is this huge produce market in, yeah. uh, in downtown Santiago. And, you know, I just find these markets so overwhelming. I mean, the idea that, you know, we, we did go and we bought ingredients yeah. for dinner and it was fine and they were pretty good ingredients and they were quite fresh and quite cheap. But, you know, we only have so much energy in a given day yeah. and it really has just been nice to go buy the Dannon yogurt and the granola at the Walmart equivalent down the street as right. well. You know, right. so, I mean, it is, I think, um, for some people, maybe it's not as taxing, but it's super taxing for me and yeah. I enjoy it. Um, but it, it's not something where I just leave feeling refreshed and revitalized and, ah, yes, the right. joie de vivre, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. Um, anyway, okay, so Sarah, underrated for you. Oh, this is an easy one. <laughs> peanut butter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our transcontinental quest for peanut butter continues. <laughs> so far, we've been able to find peanut butter once. In our entire time in Chile, there was one jar left, and when we went back the next week, no dice. Nope, not refilled. So it was good peanut butter. It was good though, peanut actually. butter. Yeah, it wasn't yeah. too sweet. Nice but and it, it has left me wanting more. Absolutely, no. It's... The addiction is real. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so how about you, John? What's underrated? Uh, well, you know, I think before you you come to particularly sort of southern. South America, you know, you hear a lot of like pisco sours and ceviche, yeah, yeah. Uh, empanadas, this kind of things. Um, but I haven't heard anything before coming here about um, just the the sort of quality of like table sauces, yeah, um, and particularly the various sort of um, chili based so ahi mm-hmm. sauces um, have all been really good, yes. and they're quite kind of different from anything I'm used to before. They have um, more of a vinegar hit to them, but it's not so vinegary like a Tabasco sauce. Right. Um, and they're, you know, spicy, but not at all super hot. Um, and just really flavorful. And even like the mustards here are totally different and have kind of more of a fruity flavor to them, but still spicy. I just really enjoyed all of, whenever I see a sauce on a table, I just have to try it. And I've been really, uh, really impressed. So anyway, um, it you know at this point it's been hard to keep track of not only where we are but when we are in the year. Um, you know we've seen a lot of Christmas trees out here, <laughs> uh, which have felt really discongruous since it's yeah. like over ninety degrees Fahrenheit. Right. Um, and you know it kind of seems impossible that Thanksgiving is on Thursday. Yeah, and you know Airbnb kitchen supplies have been rather limited to say the least. So we've actually decided that we're going to go out rather than trying to cook something in for Thanksgiving. And it, it might not be quite the same, but we'll be thinking of you, listeners, our friends and family, and wishing we could be sitting down with you for a big traditional turkey dinner this Thursday. And later this week, we are hopping on a plane and flying south to Puerto Montt. Yeah, so there are fewer overtly industrial sites in the southern part of the country, but there are plenty of interesting architectural heritage places relating to colonialism and economic development. Yeah, and we'll also use this opportunity to do some hiking and rent a car to drive even further south on the famous Carretera Austral. So here's wishing you a happy Thanksgiving, listeners. As always, our theme music is by Mark Barrett. Happy trails, amigos. Mm-hmm.